Merry Christmas and uh, welcome to everyone today. Special welcome to those joining us at the one and uh, Highland Park and Crossroads. I hope you're ready. Uh, shopping done, letters sent out, all that stuff. It's rapidly approaching. If you were here uh, last week, you, you heard me uh, ask you to step up as we head into year end, join with Sherry and me and doing something extra to try and get us to the end. I was challenged to hear that uh, 40% of retail happens in the last uh, nine days. We're not quite like that, but about 20 to 25% of our budget comes in in the next two weeks. So um, I asked you to join with us. And then if you got my letter, you got asked again. <laughs> and uh, But I'm encouraged. Some of you have been... Uh, saying that you are, and I know that the elders all checked in. I called all of them, and I said, I'm just confirming that everybody here is stepping up as requested, and they all are, so uh, look forward to ending the year well. So uh, there's a lot going on out there at the moment. There's a lot of tension. There's uh, tension locally in Chicago. There's unrest and charges and, and allegations of injustice and, and Racism, and we, it sort of implicates, you know, from the attorney general and the mayor, and we've got all this stuff going on. And then, more uh, broadly, we have uh, we have concerns about terrorism, both um, international and domestic, and it leads to discussions about security and immigration and religious liberty. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago, all of that. Uh, means that today is very much like the first century when Jesus was born. There was a lot of these same kind of discussions and conversations going on. And, uh, and it led to a lot of similar kinds of tension. Um, now we're in this series called Peace. And the, the first letter uh, of a bunch of different names or titles of Jesus is captured by the word peace. So the P stands for Prince of Peace out of Isaiah 9. The E, Eternal Life, one of the titles of Jesus, 1 John 1. Uh, a was last a week that was the Alpha and Omega, Revelation 1 and 21 and 22. And, uh, and today we're looking at the letter C, and it's the word Christ out of Mark 14. Now, I'm guessing most of you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title. It is the English form of the Greek word Christos, which itself is uh, a form of the Hebrew word Messiah. So the Jews were looking for uh, an anointed one, a promised one. And, and that's what we sort of traced last week, starting with, with uh, Genesis 3, when this promise is first made throughout the Old Testament. We looked at all these different ways in which uh, God reaffirms this promise to send somebody who is going to defeat evil, who's gonna, who, who is going to lead them, who's going to rally the Jews. It's through the, it's through the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, that God is going to bless the world. So the Jews are looking for this anointed one over and over. And at the time of Christ, their hope and expectation is that this person, this anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, is going to be a political military leader in the, in the footsteps of David, King David, who's going who's to defeat Rome, who's going to push back this military occupation, who's going to uh, who's gonna help the nation of Israel climb back to the prominence that they'd enjoyed when David and Solomon were king. And Jesus is going to make a claim. 
to be the Messiah. But he's going to say, but you're thinking way too small when you think about what David did. And, uh, and it all unfolds in a, um, in a moment of high drama that takes place in a trial. And uh, this is a trial in which Christ is, is uh, sort of, in one sense, fighting for his life, because if he is convicted, he is going to be sentenced to death. Uh, it's an unfair trial, but it's a trial nonetheless. And uh, it happens on the night that he's arrested. And the specific charges that are brought against Jesus change from time to time because what, what, they wanna, what they're going to charge Jesus on in order to sort of bring him down in the eyes of the people, because uh, the, the religious leaders are struck by his enormous popularity, and every time they go after him, he makes them look like idiots and buffoons. And, and so there's, there's, they need him to come down a few notches. But, but the things they're going to charge him on in front of the people are not going to be of interest to Rome. And Rome is who has the, the power of capital punishment. So they're going to have to have different charges in terms of, of what he's done wrong with the Romans. But at this particular moment, what the charges are is that he is, uh, he has spoken against the temple. He has promised to destroy the temple, which is, uh, would be an act of huge treason. So just a reminder, the temple for the Jews was everything, right? It was, it was what set them apart. It was, it was the White House and the Capitol building. It was Wall Street. It was the Smithsonian Institute. It was Soldier Field. It was, it was the Mall of America. It was the flag. Everything wrapped up into one. The, the temple, which had been designed by God, was the place where the sacrifices took place. It's where the Holy of Holy was. There was a recognition by the Jews that God was everywhere, but he was especially at the temple. And so the temple was where you went, where, where people could go to meet with God. And it was there in Jerusalem because the Jews were the chosen people. And so it was a very, very important building to them. Uh, and monstrously big. And the charges that get brought against Jesus are that he said that he was going to destroy the temple. Now, in point of fact, uh, he doesn't ever say that. He does in Mark uh, 25, he predicts the destruction of the temple, which is going to happen. So remember, all the way back to last week, the temple, before before the Jews get established, uh, under David and then Solomon. They don't have a temple. They have a tabernacle. So after God leads them out of Egypt, they have a tent, which is where the Holy of Holies was. And that's where the priests would occupy. And that, or that's where the priests would set up the sacrifices, the altar, to make sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. So they had a tabernacle. But then under David, David puts the money away. Solomon builds this massive temple. And it's glorious and spectacular. But when the Jews are overrun by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586, the temple is stripped. And, it, and they take all the property, all the valuables. They completely destroy the temple. And they take all the wealth back to Babylon. Seventy years later, after the exile is over, they, uh, they go back, and in the book of Nehemiah, we're learning they're rebuilding the, the Jerusalem, and then they eventually, Malachi will talk about this also, they'll rebuild the temple. But the temple that they rebuild uh, in the 6th century B.C. Is, is, 
is, again, it's a little kid's clubhouse. It's nothing like what Solomon had built. But that kid's clubhouse is going to operate for 400 years. And it will operate uh, until Herod the Great comes on the scene. Herod the Great is called Herod the Great because he's a great builder. He's a psychopath. He's a sociopath. He has his kids killed. He has his wife killed. He's a deranged man, but he's a great builder. He had been appointed by Caesar to be the king of the Jews, but he's not a Jew. (laughs) And so the Jews don't accept him. And in an effort to court favor with the Jews, he decides to rebuild their temple. And he employs 10,000 men for 40 plus years to build a massive temple. Okay. This is the temple that is, that is being completed at the time of Christ's life. This is the temple that Jesus stands in front of and says, and this is what one of the specific things they're going after him. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. So, again, this massive structure, 10,000 men operating for 40 years to build this thing. Jesus stands in front of it and says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it. Well, he's not talking about the building. He's talking about himself, right? Because he's the temple now. He is the intersection of God and man. He's the God-man himself. So everything is changing, but they don't get that at the time. But that's one of the things they're going to point to and say he talked about destroying the temple. In point of fact, he didn't say he would destroy the temple. He says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. But that's what's going on. And by the way, the idea that the temple would be destroyed uh, is, was a very live possibility. The idea that, that Jerusalem would be destroyed is a live possibility. Because it happens shortly after this. So we know that the book of Acts... That, that Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke and then writes the book of Acts, we know that he finishes writing before 70 A.D. We know this because in 70 A.D. the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. And throughout the Roman Empire, the Romans had more problems with the Jews and insurrection, revolutions among the Jews, than anywhere else in their empire. And so there, there was always this level of agitation that was going on. So... One of the things the religious leaders are worried about at this particular moment uh, of the Passover when this trial is taking place is that Jesus is going to foment a riot and that the, the repercussions of this riot will be crushing by the Romans, that the Romans are going to come in and they're just going to, they're going to do all kinds of destruction. That will happen in 70 AD. As a matter of fact, the Romans are so mad at the Jews for this new revolution that they set out to completely destroy Jerusalem. They want to plow it under. And they, Jesus will say in Matthew 25 about the temple, not one stone is going to be left unturned, right? Everything is going to come undone. And that's what you see today because there was a revolution. The Romans came in in 70 AD, took them several years. They wipe out Jerusalem. As a matter of fact... Right? They, they, they do not want Jerusalem to exist anymore. They change the name of the area to Palestine, and the Jews will go into the diaspora for the, until 1948 when the nation of Israel reforms. So, very live possibility that the temple is going to be destroyed. That's the charges that are being leveled against Jesus when we pick up with this 
uh, court trial that's going on. Mark chapter 14, if you want to follow along, beginning with verse 53. So, uh, Jesus has recently been arrested. This is the, you know, happening late Thursday, uh, early on Friday. Jesus has been arrested. And uh, we pick up now verse 53 of Mark. They took Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So it's not going to be a good night for Peter, as you might remember. He's going to deny knowing Christ three times. This is about to happen. The chief priests, verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Okay? It's not a fair trial. They're fishing around for evidence. They want him put to death. Uh, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So they've hired some witnesses. They've obviously paid off some people, but they can't get their story straight, which means there should be a mistrial. right? If, you, if, the, if the evidence doesn't line up, then you don't have a case, right? That's what's going on at this particular moment. Then, verse 57, some stood up and gave this this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with, with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Okay, this is the charge. Uh, this is John 2 where Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, talking about his body. Uh, Verse 60, then the high priest stood up. So he's frustrated, obviously. This is not going according to plan. He stands up and he asks Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer, which is exactly what Isaiah had predicted Jesus would do. So hundreds hundreds of years before crucifixion is even a form of death, Isaiah, in chapter 53, had, had prophesied about Christ's death. And uh, he describes it in Isaiah 53. And one of the things that he says is that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, who's silent before his shears. He did not respond. Okay? So Jesus is silent before his accusers. Um, verse 61, again, The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, understand, what he's asking Jesus is, are you claiming to be in the footsteps of David? Are you claiming that you're going to lead a revolution? Are you claiming that you're the new descendant, uh, the anointed one who's going to overthrow Rome, who's going to restore us to power? He's not asking Jesus at this point. Are you God? Are you the creator? Are you claiming to be one with God the Father? It's not even even an option. He's not even thinking about that. He's just saying, are you the, 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 the political, military, anointed one that we were told about and that we're waiting for? So um, that's what's going on. And Jesus answers with words that sort of stop the court proceedings. Verse uh, 62, I am, said Jesus. Now, 
this in and of itself was probably just, um, it put everybody on edge, but they don't completely understand what he's saying. The, 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 the phrase, I am, remember, is the name of God that was given by God to Moses in Exodus. God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush, calls Moses, you know, you need to go over and, and, and help the Jews. I've heard their cries, you need to get the Jews out of Egypt. And Moses sort of objects for a while, and then he says at the end, he goes, okay, well, if I go talk to the Jews and tell them that you've called me, they're going to say, who are you? So what is your name? Right? And there's all kinds of titles for God, uh, but, but at this point in Exodus, there had been no name of God given. And at that point, God reveals his name, his covenant name, his actual name to Moses, and he says, when you talk to the people, you tell them, I am sent you. It's, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's so holy, so sacred to the Jews that they won't say it. They won't pronounce it. So the, this statement, I mean, it's just loaded. God is saying, I am. I am the self-referential one, right? I am who I am. I will not be who you want me to be. I am God. I'm going to call the shots, right? So that name, I am, is both a statement, but it's a name. And so Jesus answers and everybody's probably thinking, okay, is he just being provocative here? Is he being a little cheeky? Why did he answer it that way? He says, I am, said Jesus. But then he goes on to remove all doubt. And he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, remember, we think that the claim to be the Son of God is this high and lofty claim. And the claim to be the Son of Man is a, is a very humble statement. It's exactly the opposite. Okay? David was considered a Son of God. Uh, it, it, lots of people were claiming that title. But Daniel chapter 7 has a statement that says, you know, in the end, the Son of Man who is with the Ancient of Days is going to come in glory, clouds of glory. And he is going to rule over everyone. And he is going to be the judge of everyone. And all glory, laud, and honor. Everybody is going to fall on their feet at this, and, and, and worship the Son of Man. Okay? So that's, that's what Son of Man means. And so Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. These, are, these clouds, by the way, this isn't like clouds. This isn't like water vapor, the cumulus. This is the glory of God. <laughs> so that's what he says. Am I the Messiah? I am. I'm the Son of Man. And you're going to see me come again. In other words, you think this is a courtroom? You think you're a judge? Okay. Maybe like a, a little judge. I'm the son of man, right? You're not judging me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the judge of everyone. I am, I am God. And this is just, like, shocking. I mean, you could just, everybody's going to gasp. Remember that great moment in uh, A Few Good Men where Nicholson is, is on uh, is offering testimony. He is not actually on trial at this point, but he's being questioned by Tom Cruise, who's not the high priest, but he's a Navy lawyer. And Nicholson is Colonel Jessup, and there's this 
question about whether or not he ordered a code red. And, and Cruz goes after him. And eventually, uh, Nicholson, in sort of this uh, moment of anger, makes this confession to say, yes, I ordered the code red. And everybody gasps because, oh my goodness, does he realize what he just said, right? That changes everything. Well, Jesus has just, just made a statement. He's not confessing any guilt. It's actually the opposite. He's just claimed to be God. And the high priest, by the way, he fully understands the claims that Jesus is making because uh, he tears his clothes, which is you know sort of almost a defensive act. Like, okay, I heard something that I did not want to hear, that I should not hear, that is so egregious, so blasphemous, so bad. I'm showing that I, I've got nothing to do with this. I'm, 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 I'm going to tear my clothes as an act of humiliation before God to say, no, 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 I'm, 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 not, I'm not with this guy. Uh, he tears his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And it says that they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Well, uh, this is, a, this is a, a big moment uh, in the Gospels. And so there's lots and lots uh, of people who have... Uh, written books and commented on this particular moment in, um, in Scripture. And in uh, this book, uh, God in the Dock, a collection of essays and, and articles by C.S. Lewis, Lewis writes uh, an article called, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? It's a, it's a fairly famous article. He starts by saying, uh, the question, what are we to make of Jesus, is um, absurd on its face. It's not the question. This is sort of like the fly asking, what am I going to do with the elephant? Right? Um, who cares what the fly thinks about the elephant? The question is, what does the elephant think about the fly? Right? So the question is not, what do we think of Jesus? But the question is, what does Jesus think of me? Right? That's the question. So Lewis says, this is an absurd question. But nevertheless... Um, we do have to solve the historical problem set us by the recorded sayings and acts of this man. We have to reconcile two things. And then he goes on to say, on the one hand, we have what is nearly universally agreed upon to be the highest statements and teachings ever by anyone. The greatest ethical statements. They're not... uh, uh, I love the way Lewis says this. It's not sloppy idealism. It is statements of pure wisdom and shrewdness. The whole teaching is realistic, fresh to the highest degree, the product of a sane mind. On the one hand, we have Jesus, how he lived and what he taught. And on the other hand, Lewis says, we have these absurd claims that he makes. Right? He makes the claim to be God. He says, I'm the Son of Man, right? And you will see me coming in clouds of glory, and I'm going to judge and rule over everything everywhere. So Lewis just points out, uh, this, is, this is not an isolated event for Jesus. It's the culmination of all kinds of things. At certain points, he forgives sins, right? Not like, you know, you wrong me and I say, I forgive you, 
but you wrong somebody else, and I go, oh, I forgive you, right? Like, what do you mean you free? You're not, you're not involved in this. Or you've got Jesus sitting, uh, looking down on Jerusalem and making this statement. Um, looking down on the hill, um, looking down on Jerusalem from the hill above it, and suddenly comes out with this extraordinary remark. I keep sending you prophets and wise men, but nobody listens. Right? So Jesus is saying, I have been sending you throughout time prophets and wise men, but you're not paying attention. And then you just, you, these, these, these things go on and on, the things that Jesus will, will do. Um, he's, he claims to have all kinds of power, right? He claims to be president at the beginning of creation. He's, he just makes these huge claims. So Lewis says, we've got this dilemma here. Great teaching, the greatest we've ever been given. A life unlike any others. And this absurd claim. And he says... And this is the famous line, paragraph, I'm sure you've probably heard it before. There is no halfway house, there is no parallel in other religions. If you'd gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. And If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first tore his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think you probably would have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you are a poached egg when you're looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may in fact be sane. But if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Jesus sets this up uh, with, with his response in the courtroom of saying, I'm the son of man. And Lewis says, he forces the question, right? You either say yes or no. But what doesn't work is to say, yes, but I'm not going to change the way I live. I said that there was a bunch of people who have written about this. Let me tell you two others. One is Tim Keller. Tim Keller, a uh, popular pastor in New York City, uh, author of some best-selling books. Keller, who interestingly, in commenting on this passage, says that there is more integrity with those who spit on Jesus than there are those who say, I'm in, I'm following, but don't actually live like a follower. He says, look, what we have with Jesus is a judge who is judged. And he says it's the most amazing thing possible. He says, we need a judge. Right? He says, if there's no judge, if there's no order in the end, if there's, no, if there's no higher power, if there's going to be no justice in the end, then everything will continue to unravel. And, and all that matters, I mean, Nietzsche is right, all that matters is power. Get power so you can get your way. If there is no judge, then evil's going to win and evil's going to run amok. But if there is a judge, 
Who can stand in front of a holy judge? Oh my goodness. We want to judge, but we don't want to judge. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to be accountable for the way I live. I don't want to be accountable for the things that I do. I can't stand in front of a holy God. So Keller says, what we have in Jesus is a judge who is judged in our place. And it's the most unthinkable thing. Which leads to the third treatment of this. Edward Clowney. Clowney uh, was, a, was a pastor and a theologian in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, Clowney uh, says, there actually is a precedent for a judge being judged. And it happens when God submits to judgment at the hands of the people. So in Exodus chapter 17, there's this interesting uh, episode. The Jews have been led by Moses out into the desert. So they're now free from Pharaoh. But they're not out there for very long before they start to complain, right? Ah, it's hot, it's bad, it's, uh, there's no food, we don't, like, you know, we don't like manna, and there's not enough to drink, and uh, they're, they're complaining, right? So God says to Moses, uh, call a meeting of all the people and bring your rod So the rod is sort of a symbol of justice. In other words, we're going to go to court. That's the statement. So you got to think Moses is thinking, oh boy, right? There's going to be a trial and the people are going to get in trouble for the way they've been whining. But then God says something interesting. Moses, call a meeting, bring, bring your rod, and I will stand before the people. And what that means is I'll go on trial. I'll submit to them. They're not going to stand before me. I will stand before them. Now, Clowney, in trying to explain all that's going on here, goes back to a play that was written in Germany shortly after World War II ended. The German people were uh, sort of in a state of crisis. They, They have now come to understand what has happened on their watch, that there has been this holocaust and all these people have been killed. And they're looking around saying, who's responsible for this, right? This horrible thing happened. Who's responsible? And in the play, various representatives are pulled forward to stand responsible for the holocaust. First, it's the people in general. And the people say, no, 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 it's not, it, it's not our fault. We didn't, we didn't do it. It's the soldiers' fault. And so the soldiers step forward, and the soldiers go, look, we were just carrying out orders, right? We didn't ask to be soldiers, and we didn't ask to do this. We just were, were carrying out the things we were told to do. It's the, it's, our, it's the people up the line. It's the officers' fault. So then the officers stand trial. The officers say, yeah, we're just... We're just pawns in this whole geopolitical process, right? We, it's the politicians who are responsible. And so then the politicians go on trial. And the politicians, at the end, when everybody stood trial, what everybody collectively agrees is, it's God's fault. God is the one who caused the Holocaust. Now, Clowney then says, okay, here's the crazy thing. God actually accepts responsibility. And that's what we've got with Jesus. (laughs) As unthinkable as this is. 
He is the judge who is judged. Right? He is the judge who is judged for my guilt and your guilt. That's who he is. Not just the Prince of Peace, not just eternal life, not just the Alpha and the Omega, but the Messiah, the Anointed One. The judge who will be judged. Christmas is eclipsed by Easter because what Christmas does is it gives us the main character. He's now fully and finally on the stage and he won't leave, right? He is the main character from this point on. There's not just, it's not just prophecies or theophanies or foreshadowings, right? Typologies that we looked at last week in the, in the, in the scan of the Bible. It's not just that. He's now on the stage. But the main event Right, is that he was born to die. He was born to love. He was born to teach. He was born to model. He's born to fulfill the law. He does all those things. But what he identifies himself with in the courtroom, and this is just bizarre because he could have said, yes, I am, I am uh, the Messiah. And then he could have said, and I am the Passover lamb who was born to take away the sins of the world. Or he could have said, I'm, I'm the creator who created everything at all. I'm the one who fulfilled the law. He doesn't say any of that, right? He says, I'm the son of man. I'm the judge who is coming. And I've come initially to be judged myself for you. He accepts the guilt of, in the play, all the German people, right? He says, yes, the Holocaust is my fault. And in a similar, unthinkable way, he's saying, all the sins of the world, I'll accept the responsibility. I'll stand before the people. I'll be the judge who is judged. That's the Messiah that we have. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, again, not just out of tradition, but uh, out of insight, we thank you again for your great love, and for a plan that you fulfilled. And uh, it's, it's unthinkable, it's beyond us in virtually every conceivable way. But we know enough to thank you that um, you would send your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would come uh, as a baby in humility, that you would fulfill the law, you would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and then you would stand in our place as the perfect one, the judge, the son, of, the son of man, and you would accept uh, upon yourself the punishment for our sin. Uh, it is amazing and sublime in ways we can't comprehend, but we thank you and praise you that, um, that you did that. And may we not stand, try and stand in the, in, the, in the balance here of being those who would both affirm who you are but not live changed lives. May we understand uh, the call to integrity, that you, you have forced the question. Um, we, we can't say, yes, you're who you claim to be, and then go about our lives as if um, who you are doesn't matter. So help us to take steps forward to live and love and serve and share and be more like you. And we thank you for dying in our place. In Christ's name, amen.